The collective mood on Wall Street, ladies and gentlemen, is flat right now as we are in the middle of earnings season. But right now, all we have is 20% of S&P 500 companies that have reported, yet they are feeding on the top line right now as 70% of those reporting right now are surprising Wall Street traders. Yet it's not enough as everyone is holding their breath, wondering what the Fed will do next. We're here to break it down for you. Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out in sunny and hot Scottsdale, Arizona. And we have a very special guest today, Chief Investment Strategist from CFRA Research. Sam Stovall is joining the show today. Sam, thanks a lot for being with us. Happy Sam. to be here, Todd. Good to talk to you, Tobin. Sam, absolutely. oh my gosh. Absolutely. He, I know, the legend, the legend lives. So all I want to do, though, is get to you, Sam, because... You are very optimistic right now. You have a very high price target on the S&P 500 by year end of 45.75. That is very ambitious, but it is doable. But Sam, a lot of people on Wall Street are very negative right now. What makes you so positive? Well, I think when you look to a variety of issues, you look first off at uh, we have um, several, uh, many hundreds, not many hundreds, but we've got about 100 plus equity analysts who cover about 1500 stocks around the globe. Uh, and essentially, when you look at their target price differentials for the year ahead, you combine that with the uh, technicals that target prices on a point and figure for companies within the benchmark. And then you also include seasonality cycles, etc. cetera, uh, to the mixture coming up with about a 15% gain is not really something that's going to be out of the ordinary. I mean, let's remember that uh, the average intraday high and low per year is a difference of 26%. So looking for some sort of a mid-teens price appreciation for all of 2023, I don't think is that out of the ordinary. Okay. Well, Toby, you know, you and I have been talking for a while now. We are, I would say, on the pessimistic, pessimistic side of the equation here. Are you still remaining that way? Because you got to admit, earnings right now are surprising. Well, I, I tell you, you know, when the information changes, I, I change. And one of the things that I've been focused on, by the way, CFRA does a fantastic job. If you look at their actual accuracy rate on EPS, it's uh, certainly better than any ones that I'm aware of. The bigger issue here, uh, to me, is sort of like this, this, now it's the shoe falling. We were right you know, to be short the market in 222 for all the obvious reasons. We were right to be short uh, bonds for all the right reasons. I'm really, I'm really longing for those days when there was just a binary, easy decision to make. As we roll into this point, honest to God, I, I literally, if you take the top 20 positive and the top 20 negative points that, that line up against each other, I, you know, it, it, it's a toss up. What I do know is that inside, you know, the bull or bear market, if you will, that A, the, the bear market uh, is in charge until it's not, meaning that it does have to get over, you know, those hurdles, particularly the 200-day, which it bounced right off of again today. And because that's the only way that I have some equilibrium to say, okay, where are we on a buy-sell, you know, whole perspective, number one. From a macroeconomic standpoint, you know, give me, <laughs> give me 25 days and I can tell you, there's going to be enough data in to actually make a, a, a forecast. The, the actual GDP now that comes out of Atlanta Fed, which I've been a, a fan of, we have a matrix that we've put together. It's about 75 different real-time forward-looking, not back-looking. That's the key point to our methodology. And on a forward standpoint, we're not near a 2.5%, 3% GDP uh, rate in the first quarter, uh, first and second quarter. 
So if our data is right and the Fed's rates r- rises, by the way, are lagging. I mean, I think this is the biggest part that people really are confused about. Is it lagging a month, two months? Come on, man. You know, if you look at the right. SOM numbers, you look at any, you know, people who've done the long-term stuff on it, it's a year, year and a half of, of, of a lag to really hit your real economy. So mm-hmm. I, that's the bad news. The good news is, uh, really, is that we got a lot of data and we've just joined our company. We've just uh, was acquired by a large data provider. And when I plugged in all of their data, you can make a very strong case that we had a bottom in 2022. We'd probably retest it like you'd hope we would, but that we got a real bottom because of just the breadth and depth. And remember that people were selling stocks for tax losses. The first time they've ever lost money in freaking 12 years. So yeah, they sold stocks in November, December for, for the tax losses. When you look at inflows, you look at ETF inflows. Right. Um, I mean, uh, people are betting long, and I think the bottom's in. That's a that's what I can definitely say. And then the other thing I'd say, the bull market within the bear markets, our energy tankers, our natural gas pipelines, our LNGs, you know, the things that are big beneficiaries of what I've called the Brexit Sam, which is the exit out of Russia, those have all hung out, have done very well. The yields are ridiculous. Uh, we're getting about a 14% yield out of our MLP, yeah. other market stuff. So I'll take those dividends and let the rest of it figure out because Sam's smarter than I am in this by about a factor of 12. (laughs) Well, Todd, let me add to what Tobin was saying. I mean, basically what you're saying is that a lot of things could go either way. I mean, this is the perfect year in which to become a two-handed strategist. On one hand, this, on the other hand, that. So I titled my 2023 outlook, A Tale of Two Halves, because heading into the first half, Yeah, certainly there could be some spillover volatility and uncertainty because let's face it, any time since 1948 that we have had a year-on-year rise in headline CPI, we have fallen into a bear market with a recession. Mm -hmm. Anytime we've had year-on-year decline in leading economic indicators, we have had a recession. Anytime we have had a sharply inverted yield curve, and this one uh, challenges- The record- In 1981, you were just mentioning uh, before, you and my father were chatting about how it was such an anomaly that you really couldn't go wrong by buying into bonds uh, at that point in time. You were absolutely correct. Now add the fact that we are heading toward an earnings recession. Fourth quarter of 2022, likely to be off about three and a half percent. First quarter of 2023, off about two percent, and then back down below the three percent level in the second in the, yeah the second quarter. Mm-hmm. And essentially, uh, going back in time, whenever you've had an earnings recession, you have had a uh, economic recession be coincident with it. So, uh, as Brooke Benton once sang, it's just a matter of time before we get the confirmation that we are in a recession, I think it'll be relatively short and sweet, but it'll be confined to the first half of 2023. What's interesting here is that we're coming from two different places where we're getting our data, but we're coming to somewhat the same conclusion. And I think people are starting to see this, that the other one out there, Sam, is always the it's never been, but there's never been a Fed-induced cycle where the where we did not get a recession. Uh, and then you add on top the inverted yield curve, the fact that the, you know, that the six-month and the three-year are completely flipped around. But the United States has this weird thing, and Europe has this weird thing too. We have about two percent of people, two and a half percent of people unemployed. 
people don't realize that, you know, I didn't get this hair, you know, because I'm dying it. And the, <laughs> the, the, the baby boomers are retiring like nobody's business. If I get another damn email from one of my friends that I grew up with in high school who just like quit, what would I do? I mean, I'm like 65. What, what am I going to quit? What, quit what, right? But you have, you know, you have them pu- pulling out. You have the Zoomers pulling out. You have, we've had no migration. Uh, we're, our, our, we are in a structural deficit between jobs and, and people to fill those jobs. That is going to be inflationary for a longer time than I think people have added in. Mm-hmm. And so, boy, I'd love to see Sam's numbers hit. I'm not quite as robust on the actual numbers. But again, I will say that, yeah, but man, I love getting freaking 14% yield from closed-end funds that are selling 20% below their net asset value. I mean, Stevie Wonder can make money in this market, Todd, if you really <laughs> you know, work at it. Yeah, you got that right. I, the thing about it is that I think this is going to be the, the biggest anticlimactic recession in American history because we are literally waiting for something right. bad to happen. The Microsoft earnings came out and they were poor. And naturally, the markets of Dow dropped 460 on the heels of the Nasdaq dropping. Yet we still recovered and we ended up flat on the day. And it's almost as if Wall Street traders are thinking, hey, we got to have that bad, that bad news story that just isn't happening right now. And the, yeah. the, regardless, earnings, they we have 68% of companies reporting that are beating. The, the fourth quarter average is 79% beat. Uh, so we are below, we're lagging there, but it's still not enough to move the needle on the downside. I mean, Sam, what do you think? I mean, right now, is there is the, is the feeling among, amongst Wall Street traders and strategists and your peers, I mean, there are a few negative people out there that are trying to say or trying to manufacture this this slide in the markets and therefore this inevitable uh, deep recession. But I just I'm not exactly sure it is going to happen, especially if the Fed starts pulling back a little bit and maybe move away from the hawkish side. Yeah, well, when you just were, were asking, you know, Sam, have I heard of any uh, negative people on Wall Street? I made a face <laughs> because it, it seems like everybody is negative. Yeah, I, yeah. And remember, Todd lives in Buffalo. He doesn't get out very much. Okay, so <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> well, my feeling is if everybody is, it, it's sort of like the, the old Colombian coffee uh, advertisement where it, the announcement is Colombian coffee served on the starboard deck, and then the boat starts to list to that side. I yeah. feel the same way about strategists. If everybody thinks uh, that the market is headed for an even lower low, chances are we're not going to get it. Uh, and while everybody does seem to be anticipating a recession, either it's going to be a lot milder than we anticipate, yeah. or a lot worse. It's not going to be this middle of the road uh, kind of recession. But because I don't see us trading at 60 times forward estimates and thinking stocks are still cheap, uh, I don't think it's going to be a repeat of 2000 through 2002, since we're not looking at a credit crisis similar to 2007 through 09. I think that mega meltdown is sort of off the table. The only one that still sort of spooks me is 7374, where we do have higher inflation. We do have uh, a, um, let's say, an exogenous uh, upward pressure on oil prices. Um, the only thing that makes me feel a little bit better is that we continue to see a stair step downward, whether you look at CPI, PPI, CPE, or the chain index of the GDP. Well, I would, okay. you know, Sam, I would add, where I have problems with historical reference, you know, S&P, 
1972, 82, 92. It's just the composition of, of, of the world. I mean, in 1972, we were an industrial country. Uh, we had 29% of the employees-ish that were under union cost of living contracts. And we didn't have these incredible high margin businesses. Could you imagine in 1973, 74, if you had a business like a software as a service company that had 86% gross margins, when you take those businesses and you add them into this complex now, we have much higher profit ratio businesses in all of these indexes. And I don't, if we raise inflation rate 1% and 29% of the employees got a 5% raise automatically. Well, that sure, that exaggerated the hell out of, of the inflation time of that. But in you know 2023, um, we have the technology guys who had the whole pandemic pull forward. And to me, what the, the Microsoft uh, action today was, yeah, we got it. We got the pull forward and you know it's we've cycled through it. So what's next? If, if we see a couple more of these where these are tech companies, mega tech companies that, you know, oh my God, what did Facebook hire? 70,000 people in, you know, in a year and a half? Was he trying to like, just like buy a football team and then make all his employees go to the game? <laughs> I, I, I'm still shaking my head on that one. And I got a gigantic noggin to shake. So I would, uh, I would, I, I would just say, I don't know, it's apples and oranges are not apples and oranges in the, the 70s compared to uh, the 2023s. And uh, the flip side of that is that, that, you know, we had women coming into the workplace in the 70s. Uh, they, they used to be at a, you know, an 18% level and it went up to, you know, 38 and then 40%. So there was a lot of different dynamics in the ground level macro at that time versus today. Versus today, the question to you, Sam, is, is a traditional 14 or 15 PE relevant in what I just described as is the non-industrialized 74% service world that we live in? Well, right now we're trading at about 18.2 times forward earnings, which is a 7.5% premium to the average going back to 2000. Typically what happens in a bear market with a recession, usually they end up on average being uh, lasting longer and falling farther bear markets without recessions. So without recessions, they last six months. With recessions, they last 15 months. Uh, with, With recessions, we end up declining an average of 35%. But that's because we have those three mega meltdowns of the 70s, 2000s, and uh, the credit crisis. Interestingly enough, of those nine bear markets with recessions, a good uh, six of them ended up really only being in the 20% area. So mm-hmm. you you had sort of like a barbell situation, either a very mild bear market or a mega meltdown. And so therefore, this one could end up being among those mild ones. Typically, we see a PE trimming of one third. So mm-hmm. The pointing to maybe about a 14.915 PE, we did see a sharp reduction in PE ratios at the June low, uh, but we were still a full percentage point away from what history said we should be seeing, even though, again, uh, it's just an average, it's a guide, uh, it's certainly not gospel. Outstanding conversation, guys. That was sensational. Coming up next after the break, we're going to get Sam Stovall's thoughts on which sectors actually perform best following a down market year, but also which sectors our listeners and viewers should be looking at after the Fed finishes its tightening cycle. So please stay with us. Buy, hold, sell live, brought to you by Transformity Research. 
Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Travis Carmichael, the seemingly social financier who successfully left behind a blue-collar Baltimore upbringing by transforming himself into an elite hedge fund manager branded with a sterling reputation for creating enviable profit machines for many of the world's most powerful people. His success proved costly as he became incessantly vulnerable after a series of careless mistakes and poor decisions originated from his love affair with the brilliant and stunningly beautiful Russian operative Naomi Knight. Through a roller coaster journey, of greed, mystery, sex, and murder, Travis and Naomi's metamorphosis, from scorching Wall Street couple to unrecoverable bliss, is forever locked for posterity as one of New York City's most interesting tales. Coming to you from former Wall Street hedge fund executive and frequent contributor on CNBC, Fox News, Bloomberg, and CNN, I, Todd Schoenberger, feature a historical novel inspired by true events, including but not limited to those who possess impenetrable dreams of Manhattan wealth and the consuming lifestyle it perpetuates. Please pick up your copy of No Lie Lives Forever, available on Amazon and finer bookstores near you. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Buy, Hold, Sell. The market did finish flat today on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023. And we have Sam Stovall from CFA, I'm sorry, CFRA Research, who is joining us for the show today. Sam, I want to start with you right here on this block because really you have something that's interesting. You have a focus on some sectors that seem to perform well following down market years, as well as you might even maybe give our listeners and viewers some insight on maybe which sectors they should focus on once the Fed finishes its tightening cycle. What do you say, Sam? Well, absolutely. Well, first off, uh, I, I'm sort of a Pollyanna at heart. You know, when life gives me lemons, I try to make whiskey sours. And so <laughs> I, I, I try. That also, sounds like a rehearsed line, Stovall. I've heard that before. <laughs> well, you're, thank you for listening and staying awake. That's good. Uh but absolutely. I mean, when invest, when people say to me, you know, Sam, the stock market is nothing but gambling. I say, oh, really? Tell me which casino pays the gambler 80% of the time. 
because since World War II, on a total return basis, the market has been positive eight out of every 10 years. So to me, on a long-term investment perspective, is uh, it's not gambling. So whenever we do have down years, and we've had 21 of them going back to World War II, then the question is, gee, well, what typically happens in the subsequent year? Well, normally the S&P is up 8.9% in price. Yeah. Uh, any calendar year, and higher about 71% of the time. Interesting, however, is that when the market uh, in the year after a market decline, we are up 14 plus percent, like 14.2, and we're higher by more than 80% of the time. So actually, you not surprisingly, you see an improvement in the average percent change and the frequency of advance. Uh, so typically you want to take advantage of that. Only a couple of times have we actually seen the market mm -hmm. uh, do poorly in that second year as well, which was 1974, 2001, and 2002. So, you know, you take- you know, we had that little dot com thing. Uh, Sam, what I'm intrigued is, I, I think according to most of the data, it's very rare that you have the bond market down at the same time you have the stock market, like 1798 or some you know crazy number. How do you read the bond market being down as much as the stock market in a year? Well, I think the way I read that is this is the very beginning of a shift in the 40-year bull market for mm -hmm. bonds, uh, the 40-year shift from the Fed Volcker-induced prime rate. I was, I was there at the start of that bull market, damn it. <laughs> Well, then I'll let you finish my sentence, but uh, I, I think you know, we're pretty much in sync that, uh, you know, when you're dealing with uh, the Fed that has raised interest rates by 425 um, basis points uh, in nine months, uh, then, yeah, that's going to wreak havoc on bonds as well as on stocks. But interestingly, in the year after a decline of a 60-40 portfolio, the market was up about 75% of the time, or that portfolio was up about 75% of the time, gaining an average of 13%. And usually when you did have that 60-40 decline, it was because of the stock component, not the bond component. Right. Yeah. Uh, so when we're dealing with bonds that are now trading at you know very attractive yields, as you said, uh, longer term investors, you're much better off than being in cash, might as well take advantage of that, uh, that nice fixed income, uh, annuitized approach. Yeah. You know, Todd, I'm a, so I'm a little bummed that I have been waiting so much for the metaphorical bell to ring on the, on the Fed, you know, stopping the rates. And let's assume that's 5% for argument's sake. It will blow people away that when they say, okay, it's 5% and you know, we're going to watch what's going on. You can buy a leveraged mortgage REIT generating about a 14, 13.5% yield. And that thing will go up 20 or 30% as, as rates come down because they're, they're dealing in fixed, you know, not variable rate mortgages. Right. Business development companies. You could buy a BDC, uh, you know, NEWT is one of my favorite, 13.5% yield now but they make SBA loans and then they sell them to the SBA shockingly. So they don't have any, any, all they do is service after they've sold, right? You're going to make, I will predict, you will make more in fixed income stuff selling at a discount to its net asset value. Then you will just, you know, find the S&P 500, whenever we, you know, we have a quote unquote bottom. And that only happened as I say to me in like in 1983, 84, where you could, you could buy a freaking California muni bond, 30 year muni bond, 
paying seven and a half percent tax-free. I remember a guy named Bob Fink who was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and he he was a market maker. He turned all his dough, and he was just buying these these um, seven, eight, twelve, fifteen percent muni bonds, uh, thirty years. And after about six years, he retired, and he moved to, to he moved to Thailand. And evidently, people you know convinced him that he should spend some money in Thailand. So now he's like the king of like some corner of, of Thailand with, with still getting his, his tax-free yield. Boom, boom, boom. Every quarter. These opportunities don't come up all the time. That's fine. Well, well, yeah, but Toby, your assumption there, though, is that the Fed is going to stop hiking sooner than later. And therefore that would. And you're right. Those are still quality investments. You look at a REIT, the preferreds. I get that. But yeah. the Fed isn't they're not going to be they're not stopping anytime soon i mean everybody is waiting for this so-called pivot that hasn't happened it doesn't seem to be happening i know the fed meets next week but there's a lot of hope in your assumption and i think that's where you have to be no, no, I, I, has to be aware of Todd, uh, a big to differ i said when they stop i didn't say if they stop or when they're okay going to stop. but assuming that five to five and a quarter is the highest point that any of the governors have talked about. Then, you know, when you get there, I, I, I hit the green light to buy bonds. I, I would say this, the other side of this, the thing that they're going to pivot and all of a sudden be down a hundred basis points is as silly as thinking that, you know, they're going to take it up to six and a half, seven percent a la Volcker, because I don't know if you know this, Todd, but in the 1982, when they started raising the money, the, debt, the, the rates, we as a country owed about $800 billion. Today, we owe like $32 trillion, But if you add on Social Security, all the entitlements, we owe like $100 trillion plus, And we can't keep rates. I and mean, we can't take them to 7% because we paid, I think, $800 million in dividend in 2022 fiscal year. And we're now on, on, on rate right now to pay $1.47 trillion just in interest. Yeah. And my friend, managed, we just don't have that money. We just can't yeah, you the, know, hit the credit card for another two or three trillion. The managing of the debt. Yes, that is a big <laughs> issue. And what, what if with that, though, Sam, now that the you're talking about a recession, talking about the Fed continuing to hike, hike. I mean, let's say they do s- slow down. They stop first half of this year. Which sectors? What do you think second half of the year going into 2024? And anything our investors or listeners or viewers should be focused on? Sure. Uh, well, first off, I mean, our economists are saying that they believe that the Fed will end their rate tightening program in the first quarter. Uh, actually, their belief is that the uh, this this time next week, they'll raise rates by 25 basis points and then hit the pause button, that there won't be another hike at the March meeting. Uh, interesting thing is that historically, the Fed has started to cut interest rates an average of nine months after the last rate mm-hmm. hike. So maybe that's something that happens in the early part of 2024. We'll see. Uh, the Fed right now has been saying, no, we don't plan on pausing anytime soon. We don't plan on cutting rates anytime soon. Oh, but at the same time, let me tell you that we are data dependent. So if the data does tell them they can and they should, then they will. Have so- you heard the have you heard the, them say data dependent recently? I don't remember hearing that for a long while. <laughs> it was always this we are data dependent. We are data dependent. And then the da- data went crazy and all of a sudden they weren't data dependent. Um, they're more like just depends. He um it's funny. I the other day I called him William Powell, and somebody said, "What the fin?" Uh, I said, "Yeah, Janet <laughs> is Myrna Loy." So uh, 
Anyway, so <laughs> Myrna Loy was an actress for everyone at home who has no freaking idea who Myrna Loy is, just FYI. <laughs> yeah, look it up. Um, look it up. Google it. Hey, ask Siri. Hey, Siri, who the F is freaking Myrna Loy? Fed Chair Powell did say at its most recent presser that they are data dependent and they will respond to that data. So my feeling is that, uh, okay, now Todd asked me the question and he said, okay, what groups tend to do well in this kind of an environment? First, to finish the thought about which groups tend to be the better performers in the year after a significant market decline. Well, you tend to go from first to worst meaning the best performing sectors, your more traditional defensive, like consumer staples, healthcare yeah. utilities, and then you add energy as the fourth defensive, sort of like the fifth beetle. Uh, what we find is that investors move away from those uh, stalwarts during the decline year into those groups that were beaten up the most. Uh, and they this time would be communication services, consumer discretionary, uh, technology and real estate. If you go back to um, the uh, to 1995, which is as far back as S&P has sector and sub industry level data. Interesting thing is that, as I mentioned before, the Fed starts to cut rates an average of nine months after the last rate hike. Looking at that nine month uh, pause period, the S&P gained a little more than 13% on average. All hmm. 11 sectors posted positive returns, uh, anywhere from 22.5% for financials to 8.3% for energy. And 99% of the 92 sub-industries were in positive territory, with gold the only underperformer uh, down 7% on average. Uh, so essentially what you find is that investors are going to take advantage of this vacuum of valuations. Investors are like hyperactive first graders playing musical chairs, always trying to out-anticipate the other as to when the music will stop. And once it does, I think that's when they're going to rush in yeah i take i take umbrage with that last comment um <laughs> so interestingly to support your point i was going to try to dive bomb your point but i just can't look at arkk the absolute golden child of the craziness it's freaking up 14 percent since the beginning of the year to your point the le, le caca le caca that has hit the fan are the ones that are bounced right now you know, I don't know if you have a way to measure how much of that is short covering. Obviously, these ones have, you know, significant uh, shorts. And a lot of people carry that crap into, excuse me, stocks into the year um, so that they could then, you know, manage their taxes, blah, blah, blah. But you can't argue with the fact that, as you say, the worst performers from 2022 are mostly the best performers now. I'm going to assume part of that is short covering, but part of that is muscle memory. Remember, we got like, what, 12 million new accounts from the YOLO, FOMO, WIMO, HOMO, whatever group you're talking about. And they still believe in Kathy Wood's, you know, um, sort of uh, tautology that you're not investing for this year. You're not investing for next year. You're investing for five to 10 years. And these guys are the, are the disruptors that are, are going to win. Yep. And so, as you said, it you know, it could be the uh, short covering. Uh, could be that, yeah, as you said, that the... Um, Companies were priced to go out of business, but did not. Did not, yeah. They're going to be getting back to break even. What it means is that because they've lost so much during that market decline, their percentage gain in the follow-through year uh, will exceed that for the overall market. That's a, that's, yeah. a good, that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's somewhat 
I always use the word about financial gravity. And, you know, we suspended financial gravity, if you will, monetary gravity for 12 years. And then now that it's returned, it did what it was supposed to do. It, it smacked the stupid SPACs. It smacked the 250 IPOs of which maybe 10 of them should have been done. You know, all of the froth went down the way it's supposed to. I mean, that was the thing that I, I, like, I found so, so positive about the, you know, this sort of reckoning. Is that the shit that was ridiculously valued went back to shit values. Well, that means the market was working. I mean, it wasn't like the market was, you know, on some other kumbaya mission. Um, it's it's worked. Uh, and I, so I'm more positive, Todd, what I'm trying to say. I still love all of my crazy little subsectors that are up 13% this year. Um, but we're still at about 55% cash, Sam, just in our managed accounts. Because, you know, people hire me not to lose money. That's the number one thing. I mean, if you're 25 years old and you throw another 10 grand into ARKK, dude, I'm sure you're going to break even at some point. But if you're 75 years old, uh, you actually, you know, made all this money. Your number one goal is not to give any money of that back uh, and, and certainly not any, any more than 5%. So, you know, I have people calling now who are down 40% because, you know, their money managers had them in all these right. basically, you know, crazy <clears throat> Uh, high high tech stuff that they didn't know. You know, they're passive investors. They, that's the smart person. You know, let them make those decisions. Well, the maybe reason, they'll be a little more hands on, Sam, after they've gone through that. The reason I look to uh, financial history a lot is that many times it can serve as virtual Valium, a way to calm investors' nerves. Uh, interesting is that you know we have had twenty three corrections or declines of ten to twenty percent since World War II. It's taken us an average of only four months to get back to breaking even. We've had 13 bear markets. Uh, 10 of them have been what you call garden variety or 20 to 40% declines. It's taken an average of 14 months to get back to break even. If you don't have 14 months, you shouldn't be in equities. And so even if you retired today, actuarially, you've got a long-term time investment time horizon. Uh, and so you could easily just sort of sit on your hands and wait for those investments to come back. Okay, so yeah. Stovall, you've been buying this shit for the last six months, this dip? Come on, man up. I've been buying quality, not what you just described it as. <laughs> that's great. Well, at that point, we're going to have to close it out right there on that statement. That, that's for sure. I want so to listen. I want a rematch already. I'm going to say that. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have to get Sam back on the schedule. That's for sure. So so definitely want to thank you, Sam, for joining us today on Buy, Hold, Sell. You were fantastic. Thank I know you. the listeners and viewers are going to get a lot out of it, and we do hope to see you soon. And for all the listeners and viewers, please go to CFRAResearch.com. Check out what Sam has to say, as, along with all the other analysts. I think you'll be very impressed and you'll get a lot of knowledge out of that. So on behalf of Tobin Smith and Sam Stovall, I am Todd Schoenberger. Thank you again for joining us today on Buy, Hold, Sell. We hope to see you next time. Take care. Cheers. Thanks, Thanks Sam. Buy, Hold, Sell brought to you by Crosscheck Management. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about 
and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.